Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with how Alito's banning of abortion rights has been celebrated by white nationalists, with Republican Congresswoman Mary Miller thanking Trump on behalf of the MAGA folks at a Trump rally in rural Illinois for, quote, the victory for white life in the Supreme Court's ruling. Joining us to discuss how the white right in this country is freaked out by the recent census statistic that there are more black and brown babies being born in America than white children is Gloria Brown Marshall, a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She teaches constitutional law, race and the law, evidence and gender and justice and was a civil rights attorney who litigated cases for the Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama, Community Legal Services in Philadelphia, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Her books include She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power, and The Voting Rights War, the NAACP and the Ongoing Struggle for Justice. Then, with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection announcing an additional hearing tomorrow, Tuesday, we'll examine the case they have presented so far and speak with Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers, and we'll also look into rumors of Putin's health as G7 leaders meet in Germany to prevent a Putin victory in Ukraine. Then finally, with the head of the Brookings Institution having to step down for soliciting foreign funds from undemocratic countries, a long-standing practice in Washington, D.C., otherwise known as Nigeria on the Potomac. We'll speak with Casey Michelle, a journalist whose writings on offshoring, kleptocracy and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic and Politico magazine, among others. He is a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. The author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, we will discuss his article at the New Republic, Congress Takes Aim at Think Tanks and Their Corrupt Money. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Gloria Brown Marshall, a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, who teaches constitutional law, race and the law, evidence and gender and justice a civil rights attorney who litigated cases for the Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama, Community Legal Services in Philadelphia, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Her books include She Took Justice, The Black Woman Law and Power, and The Voting Rights War, 
the NAACP and the ongoing struggle for justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gloria Brown Marshall. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Gloria. And yesterday I spoke to another Gloria, Gloria Steinem, who made the point that one of the reasons she thinks that people like Justice Alito and the right wing in this country are in such distress and such palpable anger is because they have recognized that now more black and brown babies have been born in the United States than white babies. So is that supported by evidence? Yes, it is. The U.S. Census had said very early on, going into the 21st century, that um, white babies were on the decrease being born in this country, and there, there was an increase of babies of color. And that was known to me in 2000, so I know it was known to others in the conservative arena. And so by 2010, it was understood that this was going to be a political issue by 2020, and it certainly was one. And in in a broader sense, it's the U.S. Census that has uh, suggested that they originally said that there'll be a a non-white majority in this country in 2050, but they've moved that forward to 2045, have they not? They have, 2045, and it might even be closer than we think because that's based on numbers they're able to count. And we know in many communities of color, not everyone is going to be filling out the census forms. So those numbers are probably higher than we expect. And so it could be as early as 2040 that this country becomes you know, majority people of color. And that has gotten many people who are white startled and fearful that they are going to live under um, a majority that is not, you know, one that looks like them. And they believe that they should control the power and therefore population and nationalism, and that's what this is about, is, is control the population and you control the country. Well, we had a whiff of that uh, on a rally on the weekend. President Trump held a rally in Menden, Illinois, at which the local Republican congresswoman, Mary Miller, she uh, thanked Trump on behalf of the MAGA folks for the, quote, victory for white life that the Supreme Court brought forth with its overturning of Roe v. Wade. And now, subsequently, her people have said it was a slip of the tongue or a mishap. I've watched it a couple of times, and uh, I'm not sure that she did. <laughs> I think she meant it, but we'll see. But in any case, it's there. Even if it's not overt, it's still a subtext, is it not? It, it, it certainly is. And you see the same thing with the um, marches of, of these uh, domestic terrorists and white supremacist groups who are talking about replacement theory. What do we mean by replacement theory? We mean that um, those people who are white in this country are not going to be in positions of power. Instead, they're going to be, based on merit, people of color who achieve positions of power. And therefore, these um, white theorists believe they are being replaced by Jews, by people of color, by any non-white Protestant. So that also goes to the core of this idea that, you know, population means control, and they want to control based on whiteness alone. And it does seem that Donald Trump is their champion. I mean, he, he could not condemn those Nazis who marched with their tiki torses in Charlottesville chanting, the Jews will not replace us. I mean, there's no ambiguity there. There's none. And, and also, you heard Donald Trump say, why can't we have more people from Norway? 
because what happened in the 1960s and 70s is that the quota system was also changed. There used to be a quota by law in this country that reduced the number of people from countries of color immigrating into the United States and disproportionately increased the number of immigrants from European countries. And so there was always an artificial way in to maintain the white population here. And those um, illegal and discriminatory tactics are now falling to the wayside and it's been put on the shoulders of the Supreme Court and this rogue element within the Supreme Court to maintain white supremacy supremacy and in an in instance at the same time white what they consider um superiority well there's certainly that feeling uh even though i recall in these confirmation hearings going back to alito's i was frustrated that they basically didn't uh, ask him any real tough questions and They've, we're now we know that they routinely lie, and that's the case now where Senator Susan Collins and Senator Manchin are now complaining that they felt that both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh lied to them. The, obviously, there's a real problem with these confirmation hearings. Either they don't ask the right questions or you don't get the right answers. But what's your sense then of just the legal justification that Alito put forth, which is based on this originalist theory, that since abortion wasn't mentioned in the 14th Amendment, uh, we're somehow stuck in 1860, and it has nothing to do with the current situation that we're in now. Even if you accept his bizarre logic, he's misreading the 13th and 14th Amendment, is he not? Because there, there was at that time an understanding that black women were being routinely raped and forced into reproduction in the cotton fields, etc., in the South, by slave masters, and that those who framed the 13th and 14th Amendment were absolutely aware of that, were they not? Well, they, they were quite aware of not just the, the rape and assault of black women and girls, but also of the breeding of black women, when you start to look at what's not in the Constitution, we know that Native Americans didn't become citizens until 1924. And then, of course, women, even white women, did not have full political rights during that time period. We also need to understand that the previous nationalist um, eras, for example, under President Andrew Jackson, that resulted in Native Americans being taken off their land in order, once again, to maintain white supremacy. We know that um, during the 1800s with the Chinese Exclusion Act, because the Chinese population was growing and competing with jobs with, with white workers, and so now we exclude Chinese from full rights in this country. This is an ongoing era when white people feel economically, politically, socially, that they are losing their superior position. The, the backlash then becomes nationalism. And of course, Donald Trump represents this coming on the heels of a black president, a two-term black president. And so we have this... this um, demagogue who is the face of nationalism, who's saying we need babies from Norway or people immigrating from Norway. We don't want these, you know, brown and black people coming from Haiti and from Latin America. Well, just going back to the 13th Amendment, when it was being argued in the Congress, Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts was almost beaten to death in the halls of the Congress just after having given a speech condemning 
the white slave owners in the South for the culture of sexual and violence that involved routinely raping and subjugating black women and girls. It's so true. And, and similar things happen to Native Americans as well as to um, Latinas. I, I think that this was something for women of, of color, girls of color, to have to contend with. And it's always been a double standard. The criminal justice did not protect the lives of black and brown people. Um, prosecutors didn't prosecute lynchings of black men and women. And the criminal justice was one that was to police for our officers, for example, or to protect the rights of whites and basically ignore the brutality happening to black and brown women. And so even the, the forced um, sterilization of black and brown women, of Latinas, this was happening in this country because those babies that were product under slavery was were no longer needed. So think about the um, intentional sterilization by law that went into the 1970s of black and brown girls in, in this country. And then these same people are turning around and saying, oh, we're, we're against abortion when they were sterilizing black and brown women to prevent brown and black babies from being born. So now you're hearing from these pro-life people, uh, like the Southern Baptists, for example, are saying that now they're going to focus on providing diapers and use children's clothing for all these unwanted births that are going to be happening. And in this country already, there are 410,000 children in foster care, if you could call it care, which is being too generous, frankly. So there, there's a massive hypocrisy going on here. And one of the things that I th is so extraordinary is that the United States is ranked 55th overall in the world as the most dangerous place in the industrial world to give birth. And black women are over three times more likely to die during pregnancy, as opposed to during an abortion, compared to white women. And in Mississippi, a black woman is 118 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than having an abortion. I want you to know my cousin died in childbirth. I have friends who lost their wives and their babies who are African and African-American who died in childbirth. Um, the, the hypocrisy here is that there is some sort of equal concern for black and brown mothers and babies as for white babies. And that wasn't the case before this, this Supreme Court decision. And I don't believe it's going to be the case afterwards. And even what about, I'll say, uh, this focus on the unborn and then when we get to the born, um, those diapers, those used clothes for right now, all that disappears. We've seen it in the past. The same groups that are anti-abortion um, do very little to support people once they're born. And so we have brown babies who will be born and then they'll be born into a world in which they're undereducated, malnourished because we had food deserts. We know that they we have the, uh, the school to prison pipeline. So we have a criminal justice system waiting for them and abuse under the criminal justice system by police officers. So we are putting people in the position to give birth 
And yet we don't have the support even for the white children they want to be born. They want the votes that come from those white children growing into adulthood. They don't want the brown and black births. And this is a conflict that they've given us. So what are the Democrats doing then about getting brown and black votes? I mean, they routinely rely on the black vote and many African-American specialists I've Experts I've talked to have felt that for the longest time the black community has been taken for granted. But given the massive amount of voter suppression going on that Trump's GOP is involved in, and they, basically they, what they got wrong with the coup attempt on January the 6th, they're going to get right in November of this year because they're going to control the counting of the vote in so many swing states. So, you know, this is a, this is a five-alarm fire you know, every Democrat and independent's hair should be on fire. What's your sense, Gloria, of what's being done to address this juggernaut of voter suppression heading our way? Well, it's going to be very interesting since the first time Donald Trump received about 52% of the white female vote. The second time, I believe, was around 59% of the white female vote. I wonder if the conservative Republicans are going to maintain that going forward. I think a lot of white women who claim they were anti-Trump voted for him anyway because they followed what their men wanted, fathers, brothers, sons, husbands. Um, so it always falls back on the black vote. The black vote has been powerful since 1870 when black men gained the right to vote under the 15th Amendment. And that's why you have voter suppression laws that began there. And that's why you have violence and intimidation against the black vote, because it is so powerful. I, I believe that the black vote is going to be instrumental in the upcoming elections, but it's true. I think black voters should ask for something in exchange for their vote. And, and so that wouldn't be taken for granted. What do we need for our communities that can come from the Democrats or any other political party that's going to represent us? I, I also want to pivot back to something that's very important. One of the reasons why nationalism um, expresses itself in violence and in voter suppression and other suppression laws and discriminatory tactics tactics is because they believe that their whiteness gives them superior ideas. They are superior leaders to anyone else, and they don't want to have to live under a land in which they are not the leaders of that land. And that's why so many had a nervous breakdown when um, Barack Obama became president. Um, it's the understanding that there is a white superior intellect of some kind. And so I think that what we need to get people on the fence to see. I mean, you have some that are so far to the right, like Clarence Thomas and others, it doesn't matter if they're black, white, or you know, whatever, they're still gonna believe that the superiority of whiteness. But there are those in the middle who have to see if their identity is based on being white, there should be more to them than that. There's more to life than just your race. And so if they can see that they have embedded themselves into an identity of whiteness that believes it's superior when they know it cannot be true. And once we start looking at the middle, I think there'll be more people who are willing to vote in ways in which this becomes a fairer um, country. Because white people, some of them, not all of them, but white people, some believe that they are victims of equality. The more equal this country begins to be, then the fewer levels of superior um, positions will be held by people who are white. 
That's just basic arithmetic. You can't have people rising up based on merit who are people of color and maintain the same number of whites in positions of power. And that just needs to be understood. The fairer this country is, the, the, there's going to be a lesser degree of whites in positions of power. Well, Gloria Brown Marshall, I thank you so much for joining us here today and for pointing that out. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Gloria Brown Marshall, who's a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, who teaches constitutional law, race and the law, evidence and gender and justice, a civil rights attorney who litigated cases for the Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama, community legal services in Philadelphia, and the NAACB Legal Defense Fund. Her books include She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power, and The Voting Rights War, The NAACP, and The Ongoing Struggle for Justice. We take a brief station break back examining the case that the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has presented so far. It has always been around, it will always have a niche, but they'll make it a privilege, not a right, accessible only to the rich. Hey, pro-lifers need to dig themselves, because life don't stop after birth, and for a child born to the unprepared, it might even just get worse. The situation would surely change if they were to find themselves in it. Supporters of the H-bomb and firebombing clinics. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. And we're just learning that the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection have announced that they're going to have a special unannounced hearing tomorrow, Tuesday. So what's your reading on the impact of the last week's hearings of the Select Committee investigating January the 6th? Of course, they were also the previous week as well, but just the cumulative effect... Um, apparently a few Republicans who watched it were definitely affected, but of course most Republicans didn't watch it because of our sort of tribalized uh, politics. But what's your sense in the kind of Washington DOJ loop? Are they, uh, the whole point of these hearings was to sort of present the Department of Justice with a case against Trump. I, I mean, I'm assuming that's what the purpose was. And did they achieve that purpose, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's that's part of it. I, I I would start by saying, you know, I've I've given testimony as an expert before before committees of Congress eleven times before, so I've done this quite a bit, uh, and I've never seen hearings uh, conducted the way these are conducted. Um, usually, um, they're sort of scattered all over the place. You get some presentations that are targeted uh, to the questions presented, and then you get uh, a question and answer period with members of the committee from which it becomes apparent pretty quickly that at least half of them uh, haven't prepared for the hearing at all. That's not the case here. The case, these things are um, uh, directed and arranged uh, with an almost uh, cinema, cinematographic uh, eye. So uh, the evidence has been collected for many, many months. 
And what you're seeing at each of these hearings is the crown jewels being selected, the most important little tidbits of evidence, some live, some written, some audio taped are being presented. And I think that makes for a far more compelling uh, presentation. So I, I think it's impossible to actually watch these things and not be moved and persuaded by them. So the question really is, so who's watching them? Uh, and there, I think the numbers are pretty impressive. I mean, so we're getting, um, you know, we're getting uh, live viewership that's on the level of uh, Sunday night um, or Monday night uh, football or major sporting events or Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade or something like that, which is a very respectable uh, percentage of the American public. It's competitive with and perhaps actually even more than watch the Watergate hearings. Um, so, yes, I think it's having uh, an effect on um, uh, on the independents uh, and those who perhaps weren't following things along the way. And I think we're seeing this coming out in some of the polls. I mean, certainly we've seen polls showing that the needle is now moved and we have a majority uh, of Americans, a pretty clear cut majority, who believe that the Department of Justice should be bringing criminal charges against Trump and many other people. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think they're doing what they were intended to do. And in terms of charges against Trump, just looking at the other cases, the New York District Attorney basically dropped a case, and it's still mystifying why Alvin Bragg did that. What's happening with the uh, state of New York's uh, attorney general's case against the Trump organization? Well, I think that's going forward, but it's not a criminal case. I mean, in New York, mm -hmm. um, the the criminal, uh, the power to bring and enforce criminal laws rests overwhelmingly with the uh, county attorneys, the district attorneys. Um, there's only a very small portion of it that is retained uh, by the attorney general. Um, so I, I think we're going to see the New York attorney general bring a civil case based on um, misuse of power and authority in uh, charitable organizations and probably uh, issues relating to uh, taxation, credit fraud, and things of that sort. So I think that's quite likely, but it's not likely to be criminal. Um, the other major case I think one should be looking at is Georgia, and there I think we've seen in the um, in the January 6th committee hearings uh, a good bit of the evidence uh, from Raffensperger, the uh, Secretary of State and his chief of staff, um, that's also being heard by a grand jury in Fulton County. Um, and I, I just have to say, from everything I've seen there and from the failure of response coming from uh, Trump on this, it seems more and more likely that some sort of racketeering charges are going to be brought against Trump and perhaps his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and several other people. Um, and that's moving at a pretty rapid pace. So that's that's the other thing I think one needs to take into account. And again, I'm speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. And what about the conciliary uh, of Trump, uh, Giuliani? I mean, some of the stuff that he did and said 
was outrageous, particularly attacking those two election workers in Georgia, uh, the mother and daughter, who he vilified publicly. Do they have standing to go after him? I, you know, my my best bet, based on everything I've seen so far uh, of what's being done by the U.S. Department of Justice right now, is that they seem to be zeroing in on, as you called it, the consigliere, the 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 uh, the attorney counselors to Trump who were involved in this plot. And I, I think in the uh, January 6th committee hearings, one thing we saw is that they, they've really begun to weave very deftly many of these strands together. And one thing we see is that the is that the Trump uh, the Trump attorneys really are involved in every single strand. So they're a unifying force. So I believe that um, a reasonable strategy for DOJ to pursue would be to go after the attorneys first, um, break through attorney-client privilege, get one or more of them to cooperate and use them as uh, the basis uh, for the prosecution of Trump. Because then you've got all of the um, uh, conversations going on uh, about uh, these actions, the January 6th storming of the Capitol and the fake ele elector slates and other things all at one time. So I think it's not just Rudy Giuliani. Uh, you know, I think it's John Eastman. I think it's Jenna Ellis. I think it's Sidney Powell. Uh, and I think it's Jeffrey Clark, whose uh, home was raided by the FBI um, as the DOJ uh, section of the January 6th hearings was ongoing. Um, so, um, yeah, so I expect them to be front and center in this entire thing. Well, I don't know that some of those people, though, are completely irrational. Though. They're living in an alternative universe. Are they likely to be pragmatic enough to recognize they're in trouble? Uh, yes. Uh, well, let's let's see. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, um, I think he's in a very, very serious predicament now. I think it's highly unlikely he's ever going to be able to practice law anywhere in the United States again. Um, his reputation has been severely tattered. Uh, he's not a particularly rational actor. So I think you may be right about that. But on the other hand, you've got Ellis and Eastman, who are in a certain sense. Um, and I think if, if we look at this list of five people, I think the likelihood that one of them uh, will throw all the others under the bus and come forward uh, with testimony about everything that happened is is strong. Um, and exactly who that is, I, I don't know. We don't know enough now to predict who's more likely to break uh, and who's not. So let's turn a little, if you don't mind, Scott, to your other area of expertise, since you spend so much time in Europe and representative whistleblowers and dissidents in the former Soviet Union, Sakharov, etc., What's your reading on what's happening now with the G7 trying to come up with a, a real, you know, solid plan to put the economic squeeze on Putin, on oil in particular? And I'm always mystified. Germany is the host of this G7 summit outside of Munich in a, in a castle. But Schultz is the new German chancellor's top foreign policy aide, Jens Plotner recently said that relations with Moscow are as big an issue as arms to Kiev. 
And my understanding is that the Germans are still slow walking, sending armaments that they've promised to Zelensky. And, you know, Zelensky and the Ukrainians are continually asking for arms. And the assumption is that there's a huge lag between the time that they ask and the time that these arms are delivered. And now, you know, Biden's talking about uh, delivering a new anti-aircraft system that they use to protect the White House. It's designed by the Norwegians. So what's your sense of what's really going on there in terms of NATO solidarity against Putin? Because Putin's making a ton of money out of oil. And Biden has had, you know, made it clear in his recent announcement about the price of gas is that it's all about the, the war in Ukraine. And so arguably the war in the Ukraine, as much as it's uh, isolated Russia, it's also making Russia rich. Yeah, I think I think you put your finger really uh, right on the key little bit of news we've had recently that uh, reveals the core of this problem, and that is uh, Jens Plötner, uh, the foreign policy advisor to Olaf Scholz, and the speech he gave uh, to the German um, uh, Society for Foreign Relations in Berlin. Um, in which he makes these points, which I think shocked an awful lot of people in Germany. So if you're reading the major German newspapers in the week thereafter, there's not a one that didn't uh, gulp in response. You know, what is this? Uh, and Schultz had to come out and uh, sort of back off a number of things that, uh, that Plutner said as a result. But nevertheless, I think uh, the G7 going on right now, it's clear to say that one of the big questions hanging over that gathering is uh, what is Germany's um, reliability uh, on uh, support for Ukraine? Uh, because uh, Germany, under Olaf Scholz, it's consistently uh, talked a good game and made promises and failed to come through on those promises. And that includes the things that the Ukrainians most need, artillery, uh, tanks, uh, medium and short range missile systems. The Germans have those in spades. They promised to deliver them. They have delivered very little of what they promised. Um, and the dynamics within Germany are also uh, are also rather strained. Uh, so uh, at the outset of all this, remember, Schultz was completely confident um, that Putin was not going to invade. He thought this was all nonsense talk. Uh, one of my sources tells me that in the negotiation of the coalition agreement that led to the formation of his government after the elections, um, the Greens were um, the um, stridently pro-Ukrainian, a group who did not believe Putin and believed that Putin was going to uh, invade. Uh, and they got an agreement uh, from him in their coalition uh, pact. Uh, that if he actually did the invasion, there would be a flip in, in German policy and the German policy uh, would be to side openly and aggressively uh, with Ukraine and to provide Ukraine with uh, lethal armaments. Um, but I think there's there continues to be a lot of suspicion within the German government that uh, Schultz is just blocking a performance of what he committed to do. And why is that? Um, I mean, I think you hinted at that, too. So in, in part, you can only understand that by going back uh, 50 or 60 years to the history of the Social Democratic Party, of which he's the head. And this is the party 
that put forward what was called the Deutschlandplan that, um, you know, proposed uh, a detente with the East that has always had a, a softening of confrontation uh, with the Soviet Union and now with Russia as a foreign policy cornerstone. And they've been pretty much alone um, amongst the Ger major German parties uh, in that regard. And I think Schultz uh, is much wedded to those old ideas. And I think that makes him a, um, a not an entirely reliable ally here. Um, on the other hand, I would say NATO is showing more resolve, um, more commitment and more action that has in any time in the last several decades. And I would also say that uh, we're in a period in which U.S. leadership of NATO has really rebounded, uh, certainly from the depths of uh, of the Trump years, uh, but it's it's actually stronger than at any time since Ronald Reagan, um, and um, uh, uh, you know you don't have to take my word on that. You could look to Condoleezza Rice, who said that many many times. In fact, she said she's she's shocked at how uh, forceful, authoritative, and decisive the leadership coming from the Biden White House and all of this has been. So you know you've got that. Uh, but then if if uh, Biden has a problem inside NATO, that that's two people. It's Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron, each of whom um, want to be leaders in their own way, and each of whom is jockeying to be um, ever so slightly more friendly to Russia than anyone else in the alliance. So just in closing, have you heard anything uh, from your Russian sources on Putin's health. We keep hearing these rumors that the wives of oligarchs say he's got some blood cancer disease. And Bill Browder, who I've spoken to a number of times, says, you know, well, <laughs> let's not talk about his health. His mental health is the issue. The guy's a sociopath and has always been a sociopath. Anything uh, in concrete in well, your understanding? Because if a guy's dying and he's destroying a country before our eyes, we've got to be really concerned that he's not going to take the whole temple down like Samson. Right. So so sources I've had that have usually been very reliable on this uh, tell me that, um, that there are very serious health issues. It's a cancer issue. It's probably a thyroid cancer. Um, and they say that Western intelligence collectively, this is mostly through NATO, has gathered enough information to have a pretty comfortable sense that there is a problem. What they have not succeeded in doing uh, is uh, figuring out exactly how serious the problem is, whether it's life-threatening uh, and so forth. Uh, but these two things are tied together. That is, you know, physical and mental health. Um, and uh, if he is undergoing strong treatment uh, for cancer of some sort, uh, including chemical treatment and possibly radiation uh, as well. This is likely to have some effects on his uh, on his psyche, on his uh, view of the world. And I mean, we'll see. I think uh, I think this is really a very very important question uh, on which we really don't have enough information to make any definitive assessments at this point. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. 
We're going to take a brief station break back discussing the resignation of the head of the Brookings Institution and how American think tanks routinely do the bidding of their foreign patrons. I have breathed all the sea. You're our fan prophecy. Our destiny we will not hide when the sun comes up. It will be on your side. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Casey Michelle, the journalist whose writings on offshoring, kleptocracy, and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Fox, The New Republic, and Politica magazine, among others. He is a member of the Advisory Council of the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History, and he has an article at the New Republic, Filthy Lucre, Congress Takes Aim at Think Tanks and Their Corrupt Money. Welcome to Background Briefing, Casey Michelle. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Casey. And uh, recently, the heir to the British throne, uh, Prince Charles, provoked something of a minor scandal by receiving a suitcase full of money from a guttery sheikh. But the British financial oversight people said it was okay because it was a charitable donation. So your article at the New Republic, Filthy Lucre, indicates that it's not uh, just the Qataris giving a suitcase full of money to Prince Charles, but they also have been throwing money at the Brookings Institution uh, at the asking of uh, a former four-star general, John Allen, uh, who was uh, recently required to step down as the head of Brookings. So what does this say about Washington, D.C., otherwise known as Nigeria on the Potomac? <laughs> yeah, Ian, we should uh, all be so lucky to be on the receiving end of a briefcase full of millions of dollars from Qatari officials. Uh, obviously, that we saw that play out in the U.K. They're still dealing with the fallout from that overseas. You know, right here in the U.S., it doesn't usually involve a briefcase under the table to an official or to a series of officials to get policy uh, pushed policy promoted and policy directed in the service of these regimes and these dictatorships elsewhere. Turns out all you need to do is bankroll via very uh, clear donations uh, any number of think tanks or nonprofits in and around Washington, D.C. I know, uh, Ian, you just mentioned this ongoing scandal uh, at the uh, Brookings Institution, which was, for all intents and purposes, the very first think tank developed in the United States of America over a century ago, but in recent years has been taking tens of millions of dollars from the dictatorship and Qatar while nonetheless positioning itself as the foremost kind of liberal democratic think tank pushing supposedly liberal democratic uh, policies in and around Washington while, again, uh, happily taking tens of millions of dollars from one of the leading dictatorships in the Persian Gulf. And, of course, these think tanks always argue that we're just doing research, right? That's their mantra. Of course. of course. No, that's the argument they have put forth for years. That is the argument that they and their leaders have put forth to push back against any requirements for registration, for disclosures, for any kind of 
oversight whatsoever. I mean, again, uh, Ian, think back to the past few years, all these scandals pertaining to foreign lobbying or a uh, lack of registration surrounding foreign lobbying. Obviously, think of Donald Trump's 2016 campaign when there was unregistered foreign lobbyist after unregistered foreign lobbyist, Paul Manafort and the like, that raced to his campaign that really thrust the issue of unregulated, unregistered foreign lobbying back into the spotlight. And it's only in recent months that we have seen anything like that for think tanks and other nonprofits that are doing in many ways the exact same thing. That is to say, taking millions of dollars and pushing pro-regime policies in Washington. But unlike the lobbyists elsewhere, these think tanks don't have to disclose a thing. So in other words, the MO of lobbyists like Paul Manafort, who took money from every dictator on the planet, um, like Mobuto and Zaire and others, and specialized in that, and then ended up taking uh, money from Russian kleptocrats and, and Ukrainian kleptocrats. So now that's kind of morphed into the think tank world. Is that what your piece is arguing? Well, it's not even that it's now that it's morphed into the think tank world. This has been going on for years and years, certainly over the last two or three decades, Ian, in many ways mirroring what we saw in the foreign lobbying sector. I mean, that is to say, while Paul Manafort was taking millions of dollars from some of the most heinous regimes on the planet, so were some of America's leading think tanks. And again, this is groups like the Brookings Institution or uh, the Atlantic Council or uh, you know the Baker Institute at my alma mater, Rice University, down in Houston, Texas, taking money from, and again, significant money, we're talking millions and millions of dollars from dictatorship after dictatorship uh, around the world. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the Persian Gulf dictators, you know, the Saudi Arabians, the Emiratis, the Qataris are certainly leading on this. Um, you know, listeners may be surprised that Brookings Institution not only took money from Qatar, but that was the leading foreign donor to Brookings. But hardly were they the, you know, they were hardly the only ones um, doing this and pursuing this. And again, it gets back to the lack of regulatory oversight, the lack of any kind of disclosure requirements. In many ways, Ian, this is perhaps not surprising whatsoever, given the wide open playing field that both the think tanks and these dictatorships elsewhere had to play around with. The think tanks certainly had the contacts, they had the access in Washington, and, and beyond that, they had the reputation as these fonts of you know, scholarly, uh, apolitical uh, uh, impact and you know, policy formation. And obviously the dictatorships and the regimes elsewhere had the money and certainly had every interest to make sure that American policymakers were pursuing pro-regime policies wherever they could. And again, I'm speaking with Casey Michelle, who's a journalist whose writings on offshoring, kleptocracy, and financial secrecy have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic, and Politico magazine, among others. He is a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article of the New Republic, Filthy Lucre, Congress Takes Aim at Think Tanks and Their Corrupt Money. So I must say, Casey, this kind of gives me pause because I, I talk to a lot of specialists at Brookings and Atlantic Council and sometimes at the Baker Institute. So <laughs> is there anywhere I can go <laughs> in Washington <laughs> to talk uh, to somebody that's not compromised by foreign money? 
Well, I, I will say, Ian, you know, speaking on behalf of the, the Hudson Institute, where I'm a, uh, you know, a, an adjunct fellow at the Kleptocracy Initiative, uh, there is a hard and fast policy at Hudson not to take any money from any foreign regimes, foreign dictatorships whatsoever, which I would love to see expand to other think tanks in and around Washington. And I will say there's also a number of think tanks that refuse flat out any foreign governmental uh, funding whatsoever. You know, the, the problem, again, Ian, is the lack of any kind of, on the one hand, best practices in the think tank community, but even beyond that, the lack of any kind of regulatory oversight from the federal government whatsoever. And again, it's only in recent weeks, really, that we have seen the conversation, the discussion come to the fore about what to actually do about this gargantuan problem as it comes to, as it pertains to uh, beating back and combating foreign interference and foreign influence in and around Washington. And there was actually a bipartisan bill introduced just earlier this, uh, this month that will finally force think tanks and nonprofits to disclose notable or significant donations they re receive from any foreign government, from any foreign political party. Now, again, this has only been introduced recently. It hasn't been passed into law as of yet, but it will be a significant step forward as it pertains to transparency, as it pertains to understanding where and how these think tanks are truly receiving their funding and what potential relationships, real or otherwise, they may have with foreign governments and foreign dictatorships. It's a very fluid time right now. Here we are in the middle of 2022 as it pertains to finally shining a light on and getting a better idea of where it is and how it is these think tanks are getting their funding from all of these foreign governments, especially foreign dictatorships. So let's talk about the Fighting Foreign Influence Act, which is this bipartisan measure that you just mentioned, uh, uh, put forth by Representative Jared Golden. And it has co-sponsors ranging from Democratic local congresswoman Katie Porter here in Orange County to one of the most extreme Trumpists, Paul Gosar. So I take it there's quite a few co-sponsors, right? Yeah, no, there's a range of co-sponsors, I think, as you just laid out there, Ian. I think one of the most fascinating or interesting, certainly noteworthy things about the uh, uh, legislation that we saw recently introduced in the broader conversation about foreign uh, influence, foreign interference, and transparency therein is that it does create these, at least nominally, strange bedfellows. But at the end of the day, you can find uh, uh, you know, figures and forces across the political spectrum in the United States of America, all of whom are concerned for their own reasons about, on the one hand, that lack of transparency for things like think tanks and nonprofits, but more broadly concerns about foreign influence and foreign interference, whether it's from Russia, whether it's from China, whether it's from Iran and Venezuela. You have political forces and political uh, uh, groupings across the, uh, the spectrum in the U.S. that want to finally do something about that. And I think we see that as clear as day in the uh, the recent bill that was introduced, while well, you have folks on the left, folks certainly on the Trumpist right as well, coming together to propose this legislation. So let's assume that this bill passes the House. What happens to it in the Senate? Well, that's a great question, and I, I certainly don't want to make any hard and fast predictions, especially these days, given the state of uh, American politics. But presumably, in the Senate, we would see something very comparable, something uh, very similar to what we see in the House. And the, again, the House bill makes makes three primary points. It has three primary planks, any one of which would be noteworthy on, on their own. I think, again, the one that we've been talking about most especially that's gotten the most headlines thus far is finally bringing transparency to think tank um, uh, funding mechanisms and funding receipts from foreign governments and foreign political parties. So again, think tanks and nonprofits in the U.S. would have to disclose their foreign donations. That's certainly 
one element of it. There's another element of it that would actually finally uh, prevent foreign lobbyists from campaign donations in the U.S. And we have seen for, for years, for decades at this point, um, uh, American uh, foreign lobbyists, those, those that are actually registered as working on behalf of foreign governments and foreign political parties, you know, they're, they're able to donate as much as they would like to any legislator, any congressional official, any campaign whatsoever, including especially those they are already directly lobbying on behalf of, again, foreign dictatorships, foreign regimes. I mean, it is this kind of massive glaring loophole that once you see it, it's tough to um, look anywhere else, frankly, to see how potential foreign governmental links funding can end up in the American political system. So this would clean that up as well. And then the third one, certainly that uh, stands out on my end, is that this bill would finally prevent former uh, American presidents and vice presidents, members of Congress uh, and military officials as well, from leaving office and becoming foreign agents, becoming foreign lobbyists. Certainly, as we've seen most spectacularly in recent weeks, the head of the Brookings Institution, who has since resigned, still under investigation for being an unregistered foreign lobbyist for the government in Qatar. So it does all of these different disparate things that would take uh, a significant step toward cleaning up all of these loopholes, all this wide open space that remains for foreign interference and foreign influence in Washington, D.C., well, Washington, D.C. has long had what you refer to as the legislature to lobbyist pipeline. And you just enumerated how it's not just politicians, it's generals, etc., who trade public service into private gain literally the minute they leave office. And in the case of General Allen, he was doing both, was he not? As the head of Brookings, he was getting money from these Gulf shakedoms at the same time he was on the board of companies that also he got money from the Qataris to invest in the company, did he not? Yeah, no, Ian, this is a really remarkable and spectacular um, uh, series of allegations against General Allen. Again, these are these are just allegations waiting to be proved in court. He has since, again, resigned his position as president because it came out in one of the search warrants during this investigation that he had been working effectively hand in glove with a number of other unregistered foreign agents working on behalf of the government in Qatar to not only advise the Qatari government, including things that are considered illegal, that is to say uh, black information operations, which involve subterfuge and again, many illegal uh, pieces of illegal and illicit activity, but also simultaneously pushing pro-Qatari policies in Washington to high level American officials that had no idea that he was either being paid or potentially being paid by the government in Qatar. And again, these are things like direct payments for supposed speakers fees, uh, as well as other commercial interests. I mean, there was a, a, um, uh, a you know, 100 page long document that was that was posted not long ago pertaining to the search warrant, looking into the emails and other documents related to General Allen's work, allegedly on behalf of the government in Qatar, while again, simultaneously working with Brookings and while simultaneously advising and pushing pro-Qatari policy in Washington, D.C., without anyone having any idea that these financial interests and financial linkages existed. So if this new law proposed by Representative Jared Golden, which has got a lot of bipartisan support, the Fighting Foreign Influence Act, would it then curtail the activities of, say, again, as you point out in the article, Steve Wynn, the sort of magnet from uh, casinos in, in Las Vegas, he was the finance chair of the Republican National Committee 
But he also worked as a secret agent on behalf of Beijing, on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. And there's been lots of reports, you know, for example, in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell benefited from Deripaska buying an aluminum plant. So this stuff goes on all the time, and we saw a lot of it in the Trump era, particularly with Tom Barak, who was a, both a Trump advisor and, and an agent for MBZ, the United Arab Emirates. And of course, now you've got Biden having to go to bow before Mohammed bin Salman to beg him to turn on the oil spigot. So we know that these particularly feudal states in the, with one-family regimes in the Middle East have just been throwing money at Washington forever and um, buying both politicians and former top government officials. So how much, if this were passed, this new act, would it curtail? Yeah, Ian, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, we'd have to see what the final bill actually looks like in and of itself. I mean, I think it's very clear that this is not going to be a panacea. This is not going to be the one bill to end them all and to end any kind of foreign lobbying or foreign influence and interference in and around Washington, D.C. Um, you know, look at the think tank uh, and nonprofit element of it in and of itself. It doesn't ban think tanks. It doesn't prevent them from taking these kinds of uh, uh, significant donations from foreign dictatorships, foreign regimes. Uh, it doesn't ban them from pushing uh, any kind of uh, policies that favor those regimes. What it does is finally force these organizations, these again nominally apolitical groups that are crafting policy and that are supposedly dedicated to kind of apolitical research, it forces them to reveal how much money they are actually taking from some of these governments or from all of these governments, some of which are the most heinous on the planet. It forces them to reveal to the American body politic where they are getting their money from. And then beyond that, how that money, if that money is potentially affecting or coloring their research in and of itself. Now, again, it does ban former presidents, former vice presidents, former members of Congress, former military officers from becoming foreign agents, from becoming foreign lobbyists. So that would actually go a significant way to cleaning up the specific uh, legislator to lobbyist pipeline. I mean, I can't you know, count how many uh, foreign uh, former members of Congress have become foreign agents on behalf of uh, uh, foreign governments. I think, you know, most spectacularly, you had Bob Dole, right, the supposed stalwart of the Senate, as soon as he left office, became a foreign agent, a foreign lobbyist, working on behalf of a number of foreign governments, including foreign dictatorships. But that is to say, this bill is not going to clean up everything, uh, but it will take a significant step forward. It will not only be a symbolic step in terms of where things are going, where momentum is, but it will also go a significant way to cleaning up or at least bring transparency to the think tank sector, which really has remained wide, wide, wide open to all of these foreign governments, all of these foreign regimes looking to uh, affect policy in Washington. So just in closing then, Casey Michelle, in other words, the lobbyist community, which is huge in Washington, D.C., they they will still be able to operate and the pipeline of former Congress people and senators becoming lobbyists, which they do. I don't know what they're some kind of grace period where they get, they can't do it on the day after they leave office, but they're still going to be able to, you know, represent every company in the country uh, or every lobbying group, you know, whether it's the American Petroleum Institute or the Southern Baptist Ministries or whatever. Nobody's going after them, right? So that's all going to continue. This is just foreign money we're talking about. 
Exactly. Yes, Ian. This is that. That's uh, this is solely pertaining to foreign governments, foreign political parties, as as uh, they're known in the legal parlance, uh, foreign principles that are searching for ways to lobby uh, American legislators and again affect American policy writ large. This doesn't do anything about the domestic context, the domestic uh, construct, uh, and foreign lobbyists themselves. You know, the PR agencies, the law firms, the other Americans that are working already on behalf of foreign governments and foreign political parties. They will be able to continue doing that. But members of Congress. Congress, uh, former presidents and former military officers like John Allen uh, will no longer be able to get their piece of this foreign money pie. They will no longer have that avenue open uh, to them. And again, this is this bill is in many ways just a first step toward the broader efforts of cleaning up the uh, the world of foreign influence and foreign interference in Washington. It's not going to be the last bill we see on this, but we do need to get it passed first. Well, Casey Michelle, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Casey Michelle, who's a journalist who's writing on offshoring, kleptocracy, and financial secrecy, have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic, and Politico magazine, among others. He is a member of the Advisory Council for the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative and has contributed research pertaining to offshoring, illicit finance, and foreign interference to the German Marshall Fund, the Human Rights Foundation, and others. And he's the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he has an article at the New Republic, Filthy Lucre, Congress Takes Aim at Think Tanks and Their Corrupt Money. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice said it something to me An angel song about the home of the grave In this land here of the free One time, one night One more light goes out in